When I was 15, I convinced my parents that we should go on vacation to Las Vegas. I know what you're thinking. You're 15. You can't gamble. That's what they kept telling me there as well. Uh, and, and I just wanted to see the lights. I wanted to see the neon. I had this picture in my mind of the strip that I'd seen on movies again and again and again. And I was, and I'm really into big cities and, and, and shining lights. And so we went. We had kind of a good time. We found it to be a lot more family friendly than, than a lot of people think it is. Uh, at least if you stay to the right area. And then my dad, who's an engineer, said, well, we're in the area. We're definitely going to take a road trip, and we're going to go look at the Hoover Dam. And I remember thinking, well, this stinks. How can we have to go do that? The whole trip was to, to satisfy me. I don't know that my parents ever really wanted to go to Vegas. But we went, and when we pulled in, I'm going, this is so boring. This is so dumb. And then as soon as I saw it, and I started hearing the tour, I, I said, this is, so, this is so amazing. This is so interesting. It's fascinating. I'm sure you know about the Hoover Dam. Many of you, I'm sure, have anyone been to the Hoover Dam here? It's a, a, a great uh, tour to take because you get to get into the inner workings of it. There's not any Transformers in there, despite what they tell you in the movies. But there, there's actually a lot of old technology mixed with new technology, which is kind of my sweet spot. And as we were walking around, it's getting more and more into it. Uh, if you don't know, it holds back Lake Mead, and it's a huge generator of hydroelectricity. You know, harnessing the power of water to power cities. It's, it's quite a marvel. And, I, and we came up around what I believe was a, a very old generator. I think one that wasn't even being used anymore. But to me, it looked like a big battery. And I said, I bet that's where they store all the electricity. <laughs> and the tour guide sort of chuckled and said, well, no, we actually don't store any power here. We just produce it. And then as it's needed, it goes where it's needed. So somebody in Southern California turns on a light, boom, electricity goes from here, there, and does what it needs to do. Someone in Arizona turns on a fan because it's 275 degrees in the shade, boom, electricity goes there and provides the power that is needed. This reminds me quite a bit of Reformation Day and how the grace of God works. Reformation Day is tomorrow, October 31st. It's the anniversary of when Martin Luther in 1517 nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg and started the Protestant Reformation. And part of what was fueling that was this notion that the church had that they had kind of stored God's grace. There was a treasury of merit in heaven, and they could tap into it, and only them. And so they were kind of the power company in charge of, if you don't pay your bill, you don't get your stuff, and getting all of the... And, and Luther essentially said, not in these words, but no, 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 it's like the Hoover Dam. God provides the grace as it's needed. This is how God's providence works. You need God's grace. You come to him by grace, through faith. You are saved. And he brought the gospel back into the center of the life of the church. Well, we see a similar kind of providence happening throughout the book of Ezra. God provides in his time as things are needed, and it's not as on demand as the people flip a switch and God does what they say, but when they call out for him, he does answer. He answers in his time, in his way, and to the glory of his name. Real quick background, we're already uh, halfway through this book, so I'm not going to give you all of a play-by-play -play up to this point, but at the beginning of the book of Ezra, the people of Judah who were in exile in Babylon were allowed by the king of Persia, who had taken over, to return. 
He said, you can go back, you can rebuild your temple, which lay in ruins. You can live there, you can thrive there, and just be good subjects to me, and we won't have any kind of a problem. They go back, a good chunk of them, we call them a faithful remnant, returns. And there, they, they immediately rebuild the altar and restart daily worship to the God in heaven. And then they lay the foundation, not much later, of the temple itself. And they are really cooking. They're going. And then in chapter 3, opposition arises from the Samaritans, those who were there in the land when they returned. At first, they're all smiles. Hey, we want to help. Let us in on this. But what the people of Judah knew was that the Samaritans were syncretists. Yes, they worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, but amidst a bunch of other gods. And they kind of mixed it and swirled it all together. And they said, well, if they help build, then they're going to bring all these other elements of all these other gods into our temple. And we are called to be holy, which means separate, set apart. So they said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to build it. And immediately the Samaritans turned on them and started trying to stop their work, to bring it to a, a screeching halt. They did this in opposition that took the forms of harassment and fear-mongering and threats and also a letter-writing campaign. And that's the thing that turned out to be most effective at this point in the book. They send letters to the king and say, listen, these people, it's no longer Cyrus who's on the throne, but they, they say, listen, these people say that they're allowed to build, but they're not building. And, and over time, we have 14 years where the people don't do anything to build the temple they instead just turned their attention to their everyday lives, building up their own houses, beautifying their own houses. And before long, they just think of their temple as an altar and a foundation and a heap of rubble. And that's that. And they're comfortable with it. Then we saw in chapter 5, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah do what prophets do best, which is light a fire under the people and rebuke them and say, you say to yourselves, it is not yet time for us to build the house of God. Tell me, is it time for you to build up your own paneled houses? Get at it. Start building. God is not happy with the status quo right now. And so they begin building again. And what is it that their enemies do? They show up. Tatanai, or should I call him Tatalnai? Eh? He says, what do you think you're doing? Who told you you can build this temple? King Cyrus, the king of kings, that was his title at the time, uh, he told us, Cyrus the Great, that we can do it, and that uh, you're supposed to help fund it, and that this whole thing is the reason that we were allowed to return to the land. And they say, we'll see about that. And then we saw that they wrote a letter from Tatanai and his buddies that Larry pronounced, and I'm not going to try, and the letter went, and it said, basically, this is what they're doing, this is what they claim, they claim that Persia is behind them. They claim that Cyrus gave them the permission. We find it all to be quite suspicious. And then at the very end of the letter in Ezra 5.17, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So the letter goes off to Darius and the people keep building. That's where we left it while they wait for a response. Now, we've switched kings here. I want to give you a little background on Darius because I find it fascinating. It's kind of like ancient Persian soap opera stuff. Uh, Darius was related to the royal family, to, to King Cyrus, but not a direct descendant. He wasn't in the direct kingly line. 
What had happened when Cyrus died was that his son, Cambyses, had taken over. It was a short-lived reign. He was killed in an ambush, a wound to his thigh. It got gangrenous, and he died. And after Cambyses died, his younger half-brother, Bardia, another son of King Cyrus, proclaimed himself to be the king now, the king of kings, which includes being king of Babylon and Pharaoh of Egypt and all the rest. He said, that's me. He moved the seat of governmental power to Media and just took over. But then, and this is crazy, some officials, some nobles, discovered that the real Bardia had been dead for years, and this guy was an imposter, a sorcerer who had fooled everyone and usurped the throne. We don't know if any of that is really true. People are leaning, historians are leaning toward probably not, but enough people believed it that a group of seven nobles plotted together They surprised this new king at the castle at Nyssa, stabbed him to death, and that was the end of this king. One of those seven nobles was Darius, or Darius. He then became king. Now, because he lacked a clear mandate in the parlance of our time, a bunch of rebellions quickly sprung up. They thought, oh, this guy's weak. This guy doesn't really have any kind of claim to the throne. And he's playing whack-a-mole with all these rebellions. And at the same time, trying to establish himself, establish his own legacy as a great king. And so kind of what he's doing is trying to bring people back to the era of Cyrus the Great. To do everything he can to make people remember that era when everything was cool and everything was okay. And nobody would dare revolt against the Persian Empire. One thing he did was to claim the name Darius the Great. And another thing he did was to return to the policies of Cyrus, particularly those policies that would make him friends and not enemies, both human and divine friends. These policies certainly included, and perhaps at the forefront, was the idea that I'm going to permit people to rebuild destroyed houses of worship, to resume worship there, with the caveat that as they pray, as they sacrifice, they're offering up prayers for me, too, in the midst of it. It is perfect timing. In fact, this guy is so into making cosmic allies that there's an Egyptian inscription that calls him Darius, friend of all gods. It's like, I can get all these gods in my corner, just like Cyrus did, my second cousin once removed or whatever, and then things will work out for me. It's perfect timing, and God orchestrated it. But recognize that even though we know such a decree was made by Cyrus, we've read it ourselves, and we know the Persians were meticulous record keepers, it was not a foregone conclusion that it would be located and everything would work out. For the very reason that they were such meticulous record keepers, it was difficult to locate one decree or edict amidst tens of thousands at least. It would take a lot of work. And in doing that, they also it presupposes that he cares at all. I mean, why would he? It wouldn't have been completely out of character for a man like Darius to say, you know what, I get a lot of requests. I'm busy with rebellions. I'm busy running the world. I don't have time for you little people and your little problems. I think about how much junk mail I get at the church in my inbox in the email and in the paper mail. They don't think it's junk mail. Most of the people sending it out, you know, here's our ministry, here's our retreat center, here's this, here's that, here's a poster, here's all. And I go, well, we're, I can't partner with all these people on all these things, and most of them just get chucked. And I don't even run an empire. I can't imagine the, the number of requests coming into Darius, and yet in God's providence, he takes this one to heart. He says, you know what, let's find this thing. 
And they, they bring about the search in the place that, that Tatanai asked him to, which is the royal records room, the, the royal archive in the city of Babylon, and they don't find it there. Where they find it is in Ekbatana, which is basically the summer palace. And, and it just so happens that that's where Darius liked to spend all of his time. All of these things seem a little bit convenient unless we see God behind the scenes bringing them about. Truly, it was a miracle that it was found at all. It just so happens that Darius spent most of his time there. It just so happened that it pops up. And of course, it doesn't just so happen. We even see uh, a reference to this in what we call, I've, I've told you about this many, many times, the divine passive, which is in the Old Testament when they'll use the passive tense. And instead of using it to dodge uh, taking blame, like people use it today, like a politician will say, you know, mistakes were made, so that he doesn't have to say, I made mistakes. Well, the way it's used in the Bible is as a way to kind of credit God. This thing was found. Now, it's probably some scribe who located it, but it was found because God was at work in his providence, causing it to be found. We see God's hand, God's providence, God's timing. In fact, I might say this is a primer on all of those things. This little passage here in Ezra chapter 5. In fact, Darius, he is, he's not going to bat for the God of the Israelites. He doesn't have a vested interest in this God, even though he speaks of this God in such high terms. He shares the same selfish motives that Cyrus had. Not only a wide spectrum of supernatural favor, like got to catch them all, like gods instead of Pokemon, right? So that he has all the power. This is kind of how he approached these things. But even beyond that, what he wanted was to make sure that there was a continual show of loyalty. This continues throughout history, that as long as a subjected people keeps making uh, prayers and sacrifices on behalf of their uh, suzerain king, it means that they are loyal. As soon as they stop doing that, that's seen as rebellion. In AD 66, they stop offering uh, sacrifices on behalf of Caesar. And that's the beginning of the end for Jerusalem and Judea. And so he wants this to be all lined up. I don't have to worry about these guys. Their God's on my side. Their leaders are on my side. And everything's okay. And yet, God is at work in these selfish motives. And when the king tells them in verse 10, by the way, just make sure you pray for me, for the king and his sons, that's not anything out of sorts. He's just telling them to do what they ought to be doing anyway, praying for their leaders. Yes, they're there in exile as punishment, and when they return, it's kind of holdover punishment from the exile. But remember Jeremiah 29, which Larry read for us earlier. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What we see here is God, in his providence, braiding together the zeal of the people for God's house the tactics and efforts of their enemies against them, and the agenda of the king. Three very distinct, diverging, disparate things, and yet he sort of weaves them together into a tapestry that looks an awful lot like his will being done on earth for his glory. This is not the first time this has happened, and it's certainly not the last. It happens throughout scripture, and we see it happening in church history as well. Again, we're on the, the very uh, eve of Reformation Day, so I'm thinking about the Great Reformation. I think about the world of 500 years ago when in Europe everyone was quote-unquote Christian, but few people were really involved with the church. 
beyond a cultural or superstitious level. Their faith was one little element of their lives. And even those who dedicated their lives to the church, monks or clergy or even bishops that we read about in church history, often led lives of such blatant carnality with no fruit of the Spirit to speak of that we wonder how could they actually even be regenerate. Luther, when he went to Rome, thought he was going to find this wonderful, serene, spiritual utopia where everyone was praying all the time and it didn't have all the usual problems of big cities. And he got there and he was horrified. He said, the first thing I noticed was brothels specifically for clergymen. And he realized that the church, in some sense, was in, in danger of being lost. The average person was maybe not that hypocritical, but the norm was to attend church on feast days, maybe give an extra offering here or there when the, the church leadership and the religious authorities really turn up the pressure. But even then, many, if not most, were disillusioned and thought of the church as a racket. It was on a bad road. There were a lot of big, beautiful buildings, but Christianity was in many ways an empty husk of what it had been in the first few centuries after Christ's resurrection and ascension. That was 500 years ago. 250 years ago, here in America, we think of that often as this very religious time, right? The pilgrims, they have their buckle caps, everybody's going to church all the time. You know, only 17% of American colonists were church members. People want to get back to that time. Even though it's going down now, it's almost at 60% of Americans are church members now. You don't want to go back to 17%. I remember being taken around to all these little colonial villages when, when I didn't get to choose the vacation as a kid. And at one point, I was like, these churches are all so cute, but they're all so tiny. You can only seat like 36 people here. Is that how many people lived in the town? And, the, you know, the person doing the reenactment and the... And the Garb would say, no, no, that's just how many people attended the service. That's all the bigger this meeting house needed to be. It was called the Age of Reason. Religion itself was about to fade into the background, they said, and Christianity with it. That's 250 years ago. Reminds me a good deal of today, where we see trends of the rise of the nuns and trends of churches emptying out and people left and right saying, you know what, I used to call myself a Christian, I don't anymore, I don't really have any particular beliefs. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. If there is a God, uh, it's just a force that wants the best for me. And we say, oh no, all seems lost. Well, you see, when all seems lost is often when God weaves together all these diverging things and has this master plan, this tapestry we cannot see. I should have brought this tapestry that, that Aaron and I have where you look at the back of it and you can kind of make out the picture, but it's a real mess. You turn around in the front and see the, the plan in, at work and you see this beautiful, detailed picture. We might compare God's plans to that. We only see the back of it, if that. And we're zoomed in this close, so we can't make it out anyway. In, in all three of those examples, we see the, the same echoes of Ezra 3, 4, and 5. Resistance from the government, resistance from enemies of the faith, and just resistance from the, the culture of the age and the, the shifting minds, the, the waves and winds blowing people's hearts back and forth. We also see God at work in his time lining things up as he does. 250 years ago when it looked like Christianity was going to fade away, what happened? The Great Awakening. The greatest revival the West has ever seen. The Spirit just burning through this country and people coming to faith. 
Not just a nominal faith and saying, oh yeah, I'm going to clean up my act and maybe go to church more, but the Spirit bringing people to repentance and true faith, people being born again. 500 years ago, of course, the answer to all of that was the Reformation, where I believe God was kind of braiding together technology, especially the printing press of the day, cultural trends, the Renaissance, and an idea of returning to source material and finding what this is all about at its core, and even the, the specifics of this chubby little monk's life. This, this son of a copper smelter caught in a thunderstorm, and I can see God up there just yeah, throwing lightning bolts inches from his feet until he said, if I survive this, I'll be a monk. Okay, we can work with that. And the rest is history. God is at work. This is how he functions, working all things together for the good. In Philippians 1, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. All that has happened to me has happened to advance the gospel. What happened? Persecution, arrest, right? shipwreck. He was imprisoned. He was flogged. He suffered. Looked like the devil had won because this guy had been traveling the world bringing the gospel was now stuck. He was in chains. He's chained to two Roman guards all the time. Or rather, from Paul's point of view, they're chained to me. And I can preach the gospel all day long. And I can write my prison epistles and I can do work of the kingdom. And eventually they will bring me to Rome to stand before Caesar, which is what I told them I wanted from the very beginning. But it goes even beyond that, this kind of providential weaving together of things into a plan we could never have predicted we see here reversal, total reversal. When things look lost, suddenly it's not just, whoa, saved by the skin of my teeth, but an absolute reversal. We saw that in Esther. And by the way, to put things in context for you, we're in Ezra 6 right now. Between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7 is where the entirety of the book of Esther takes place. So in Esther, you'll remember that this whole story looked like all is lost. God's people are going to be wiped out. It's going to be legal to attack them, take their stuff, and kill them. And it's going to be illegal for them to defend themselves. <laughs> it was a crazy situation. And then through all sorts of machinations that none of us could have ever predicted, God reverses that so that the people establish themselves and actually gain land and gain safety and security. Or think of Moses' mother, Yocheved, right? She, she puts him in a, a basket out into the Nile, and she steps back and says, well, God will take care of him. Who finds the baby but Pharaoh's daughter? Miriam, his sister, is, is watching, runs up and says, hey, if you need someone to nurse that baby, I know someone, low rates. And so now not only is she not going to be killed for not putting her son to death, she's being paid to nurse her own son. These kind of great reversals. We read about them in Psalm 7. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief re returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Not only does God reverse things so that the righteous are vindicated, but he does it so that the wicked are punished. And we see that here in Ezra, God's people are vindicated. His enemies fall into their own pit. So Tatelnai tried to ensure that this work would be shut down yet again, and this time permanently, 
He wanted them to be rebuked by the king and maybe threatened with some kind of uh, reprisal if they did not obey. But instead, he himself is rebuked and he is threatened. You stay away from this work. It's got nothing to do with you, Samaritans, which is exactly what the elders of Judah tried to tell them to begin with. But there's more reversals yet. In chapter 4, the Samaritans tell the king, careful, they're building again. And the history of these people is, once they start building and once they establish themselves, you won't get any more tax money. Think about the tax money, king. Here, the Samaritans are told, since this is all happening in your province, you are to fund this work out of the tax money that you collect. Can you, I mean, I can imagine them just hitting themselves in the head over and over again. Why did we write that letter? Why didn't we leave well enough alone. Reversal is built into the language here. If you try to keep that house from being built, the house of God, your house will be destroyed. A beam pulled out, the house will collapse, it becomes a dunghill, and then you will be impaled on that beam. Wow. You know, it used to say at the bottom of every set of, of business meeting minutes, at Judson. Special note, the time capsule buried July 4, 1976, just west of the cornerstone, is to be opened at the 100th anniversary of Judson Memorial Baptist Church. This note is to be part of the church clerk's annual report each year until 2031. At some point, we fell off doing that. You make sure that that gets back into our minutes now. And everybody else, plug your ears. But Donna, I think it would be funny if after that, you added, if anyone alters this report, let a timber be pulled from his house and may he be impaled on it. Let's just see if anybody's reading these things, if anyone notices. It's just in there, just like a matter of course. God is doing it, of course. God is making sure that this reversal is complete and he gives them more than they asked for, more than they dared to hope for. Yes, he tells them, leave them alone to work, like when the Cobra Kai weren't allowed to mess with Daniel's son while he trained. But it goes way beyond that. Best case scenario, the Jews were hoping that Darius would allow them to keep on building and that they wouldn't have to stop. Instead, he says, yeah, leave them alone to build, but also, you Samaritans, provide for them the cost from your own tribute money to build and the cost of materials, provide daily the food needed and even the animals to be sacrificed. And if they had some idea that we'll cut corners and send them lame animals or blind animals or something, remember, some of these animals will be sacrificed for the king, and sending bad animals to be sacrificed to the king would be seen as fomenting rebellion. So they were stuck. They had to follow all of these plans. God's plans. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It gets bigger. More than they dared ask or think. Look at the dimensions that Darius lays out in his letter. They're bigger than Solomon's temple. Cyrus had all been about, I'm going to make it Everything exactly like it was before it was knocked down. Darius, he's overcompensating now. He's trying to get something back. And he says, you know what? Let's go bigger. An even more impressive sanctuary. It's been suggested that this must be a copyist error. doesn't seem to be a copyist error to me. It seems to be a king who doesn't really know where his hope lies. And God using that to his glory and for the hope of his people. And it happens in God's time. 
There's a Greek word that's used in the New Testament. The fullness of time. In the fullness of time, Jesus came, is what Paul says in Galatians. And the word is pleroma. And it means something so full, it can't get any fuller. For example, if you, if you fill up a coffee cup, I like to fill it up so that there's like that curved meniscus at the top, and you're like, I can't get any more coffee in there. One more drop, and it's going to break the surface tension, and we're going to have a mess here. This morning I went up and asked Jen if she had a balloon somewhere in her craft supplies. I was sure she would, and I was going to start blowing it up and blowing it up more and blowing it up more, and everyone was going to get nervous, and I was going to blow up until it popped. She didn't have a balloon, so I'm kind of glad now in retrospect. But that's, that's it. That's the, the fullness of time. God works in the fullness of time. We don't know how much air is in the balloon. And when we pray and say, God, where are you? Like David and the psalmists often do. Lord, where are you? Why are you not answering me immediately? I flipped the light switch. Where's what I need? He's saying, hold, the fullness of time is not yet here. You saw in that flash forward in chapter 4 that the enemy may have seasons of success in stifling the work of the kingdom. Here, we see that such seasons are always temporary. We don't know when or how, so we must always obey him diligently, even as we wait on the Lord. And as they did just that, he answered their prayers. Today, of course, the temporal building is a, a spiritual temple. It's not in one location on this earth, but it is a worldwide kingdom. And often, work is halted or stalled in one place while there's great revival somewhere else. And so wherever we are, and whatever the situation, we have to wait on the Lord, be diligent and faithful, not disobey, not turn our backs on Him and look only to our own paneled houses, so to speak, but to seek His face. Seek it day after day, knowing that He works in His time, but He works indeed. Eventually, the truth will prevail, as it did here, and the truth will set you free. They find, yes, Cyrus made this decree, and then Darius even makes it all the bigger. There's a lot of worry, there's a lot of anxiety in the world today, just as undoubtedly there was amidst the people of Judah in that day. People are worried about the direction of our culture, how we are becoming more and more godless by the day. I am worried about it as well. Elections coming up, a lot of people get worried about that. They, they see uh, maybe not an ultimate answer, but some help coming from this corner or that corner or this quarter or, or somebody, and they think, what if it doesn't turn out the way that I want? What if it turns out the opposite way? And they get worried. We live in an age where we say, well, COVID seems to be waning, but what about winter when it comes back? Are we going to have another surge? Is it going to be really scary again? What's going to happen? The economy is a mess. All of these things, we could say to God, look, I'm flipping the switch. Don't you hear me? I'm dinging the bell, calling the stewardess. Where are you, God? Trust that the God who again and again in the scriptures and again and again in church history worked in his time braiding together all sorts of different things that we never could have predicted into his cosmic plan is still at work. Is not asleep at the switch. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. When you may start to doubt this, think of the cross where we see God's providence most clearly at play. Where we see his providence and his power and his protection. The same things we see in Ezra chapter 6. 
And, and then see how Ezra chapter 6, like all of the Old Testament, points us forward to that cross. What do we see here? We see the decree of the king saying the, the sacrifices that are required will be offered for you, will be provided for you. That's fulfilled in the cross. And at the cross, Jesus then fulfills once for all the need for sacrifice. God provides in his time. And the people had been praying and praying for thousands of years. And God answered in the fullness of time. 15 years, 1,500 years before this, at Mount Moriah, God had provided a ram caught in a thicket so that Abraham did not need to sacrifice his own son. 500 years after this, God at Mount Calvary provides his son so that we do not need to die for our sins. That is where we see God's provision most clearly. Know that the God of heaven and earth sees our worries, sees our, our dangers, sees the, the struggles that we are undertaking, sees what keeps us up at night. And he cares. He is at work. And if you are ever in doubt that he will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, just open up almost any chapter of this book and you will see him doing just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter sent from King Darius for whatever reasons overwhelmingly supporting the right of the people of, of Judah to rebuild their temple supplying the needs that they had, offering them protection, keeping their enemies at bay with very graphic threats. Lord, we know that while Darius seems to have been a rather righteous king, you are infinitely more righteous and that we can trust you to be infinitely more on our side and care for us and protect us and provide for us. Lord, we know that you are perfect and holy that you are almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. And Lord, we know that we don't need to even write letters to you and wait for them to go and be carried over land and sea and then for a response to come, but we can simply speak to you. You will hear us. Lord, remind us again and again when we are tempted to despair, whether it's about the direction of the world or our country or our own city or whatever it is, or whether it's about the situation in our own households, our own health, whatever the case, remind us that you have been faithful at every turn and we can trust you to be faithful to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.